Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. All right, let's get back into it with dude spellings. Hopefully you listened to show number one. Oh man, starting out with a bang where he threw his back out in the gym and was laying there on the ground feeling like he'd hit a low point and he said, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy that goes on that slow, steady march into decline and dealing with the ridiculous injuries like those random back strains that are debilitating for days afterward. I had the exact same thing happen to me and boy, is that a motivator if anything. So we pick it up when we were talking about the uh, the dangers of a chronic approach. I was talking about in the previous show how my professional career was one of sleeping, laying around, feeling tired all the time, and then getting back up and putting every ounce of energy into the workout patterns that were uh, I was compelled to do to race at the pro level and try to make those incremental improvements on time that take everything out of you. And dude talks about that pack of hot shots. There's one in every single city. I think you know what I'm talking about and how he used to be in that pack, influenced by that chronic approach and that constant competitiveness every time the group meets up for a run and how he second-guessed and corrected course. So enjoy part two of the Dude Spellings interview. Right, I was that guy when I was racing on the professional circuit and my mindset and the collective mindset in the community was you push yourself as hard as you can. Don't forget you're a professional athlete. So you have your entire day and your entire lifestyle is calibrated so you can go uh, produce as much work as, as humanly possible. And we never thought about the balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and the idea that we were constantly pushing ourselves to the edge, breaking ourselves down. And yes, uh, on occasion or frequently, you can go out there and perform in a competitive event and put up some good numbers, just as you report with your 1856 5K. Most people who are jogging at 13-minute pace on the trail um, you know, can't throw down in that manner. That's from your background and your um, as, as a champion back in high school, that stuff is still in your genes and you still have some fitness adaptation there. But I think that that long-term view that we're uh, accelerating the aging process, uh, constantly flirting with illness, injury, breakdown, burnout. That was a really tough one, uh, to wake up to. And I, I believe that as I write about in the book, you know, about halfway through my professional career, I woke up and I said, gee, you know, I can't train any harder. I'm already uh, asleep for half my life <laughs> and hanging on by a thread. I mean, literally, it felt like my deltoids were hanging on by a thread because they were constantly inflamed from too much swimming. And my uh, plantar fasciitis was a constant crippling case of plantar fasciitis where I had to hop without putting weight on my foot over the, to the jacuzzi every morning and go through range of motion exercises with the hot jets before I could actually walk like a human. So getting out of bed and not being able to walk every day for years and years. Um, you know, looking back, we can laugh. Hopefully you're laughing at the story, listeners, but, um, you know, it's pretty <laughs> ridiculous to think that was my existence and that was supported by, um, you know, the, 
the, the community. This is what it was all about to be a professional athlete and just, you know, tape yourself up and get out there again. Um, but especially for, you know, the casual enthusiast, oh my goodness, you know, we're talking about you're, you're heading off to the edge of a cliff at some point, uh, it, at worst and you know even at best you're going to talk about uh these plateaus like you mentioned where you just you get to a certain level and that's all you got and you're a mess and so you're never going to improve you're only going to fall apart that's your only direction is down into the well yep and and i have to say you know um i was definitely one of these guys where I used to uh, run with this group of guys and, you know, I'd want to be at the front of the pack every day. And man, my, my outlook and attitude has changed so much where I don't even run with those guys anymore. Um, They do a track workout. I don't know, like once a month and I, I might show up to one of those track workouts every quarter. Cherry picker. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, totally. Here comes the cherry picker. Well, it's funny because because back when I used to run with these guys all the time and I was sore and stiff and couldn't move, you know, I was definitely a middle of the packer, maybe back of the front pack, but nowhere near the front. But now that I'm cherry picking, I come in, I feel fresh. I, I'm, I'm, you know, ready to go. I, I've been, uh, you know, doing all my, uh, low intensity training so that I'm not overspent. And then I show up to these, um, track workouts and blow it out of the water and kill these guys that are like 20 years younger than me. And they're, they're saying like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, how, how did, how, why are you coming to these things? And you're so fast now. And I try to explain to them what I've been doing. And as soon as they hear like, Oh, you're, you're doing this heart rate training. Oh uh, yeah, that's, um, I'm not doing that. Well, okay. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, you brought up some interesting points and one of them is, this is something for all the listeners to reflect upon is what is your highest purpose for being out there and, and uh, doing these uh, magnificent work efforts. And I think in a lot of cases, it's an opportunity to uh, expend uh, nervous, stressful, physical energy uh, that's coming from a stressful work situation or the commute or the lot of time where you're just sitting around or uh, emotional disturbance, you know, difficult times in life and you go out there and blast a, a high intensity workout and you get that burst of stress hormones, the uh, endorphin-like hormone cocktail that makes you feel a sense of euphoria and, and, and a pain-killing effect. And it's a coping mechanism to get through life that's arguably way better than uh, heading to the bar after work and uh, putting in um, foreign substances. So if you're in that sort of addict mode where this is a coping mechanism for difficult life circumstances and... Um, that's where you are. That's fine. But, you know, the reason we're doing shows like this and wanting, encouraging people to awaken further to the benefits of slowing down to go faster and all that crazy stuff. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice thing to think about that there's a better way than just, uh, you know, blasting, blasting those, um, those jets open, burning the calories and then going home and crossing your fingers, hoping you don't get injured. Uh, Dr. Kelly Starrett and his book, Ready to Run. What are the stats in there? Like some, some unbelievable, like 78% of runners 
get injured every year or something crazy like that. Like it's just this, it's just this breakdown, this, this flawed approach where people are just running themselves into the ground. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of the people I'm coaching right now is my cousin who, um, she actually held the fastest known time record for a female for the wonderland trail around Mount Rainier. And, uh, it was just broken like two weeks ago. She was very upset, but she contacted me, um, a f- about a month ago and said, Hey, you know, I'm feeling a little bit burnt out and a little bit, uh, low energy. And I was wondering if you might, you know, help me kind of get back some of my, uh, pep in my step. So I agreed to do it. And, and, you know, she's a very accomplished, she got a fastest known time. She's, you know, approaching elite, if not elite. And the first thing I told her to do is I wanted her to do three months of, of math training and which she had never done before. And at first she was like, Oh, I don't know if I can do this. Like every day, you know, emailing me going, man, this is really rough. But now she's three weeks into it. And she, her emails are like, man, I really feel so much fresher all the time now. And I don't feel run down and, you know, I'm starting to like this. Yeah. You just got to give it a chance, open up your perspective to realize that this stuff is proven to work and has been proven by the performances of the elite athletes in every endurance sport for the last 50 years plus going back to Arthur Lydiard and the great runners in New Zealand who did over distance aerobic work in preparation for their world record setting track efforts, Olympic gold medal winning. But for some reason, uh, there's that bit of resistance. And I think you conveyed it when, um, you know, you're, you're explaining to people why you're blowing them away on the occasional track workout rather than being the perfect attendance award. And they scoff at it because they get a payoff and I'm certainly not criticizing it's okay there's no there's no right or wrong here and you do get a significant payoff when you go out there and blast the energy out of your body you're performing a work effort and you're getting an endorphin cocktail in return so that's um that's not to be judged but we are presenting um hopefully a more attractive option where you can escalate your performance without the risk of burnout yeah, um, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned Lydiard there too, is because my my cousin was very familiar with with Lydiard, and you know she was concerned that she wasn't going to hit high mileage during this training because she was going too slow, right? It'd take too long, and I'd never thought about this before, but her question made me think of it in this way, which is, um, you know. Lydiard was famous for prescribing 100-mile weeks. Well, these athletes are like elite runners, and their uh, MAF pace is like six-minute mile, which is 10 miles per hour. So if you're running 100 miles in a week at 10 miles per hour, that's only 10 hours a week. <laughs> Get it, getting it done, man, getting work done. And, that's right. And so what I told my cousin is like, that's what you should shoot for is 10 hours, right? You're, you're not a Olympic gold medalist, 800 meter athlete. You're a good athlete, but your, your, your math pace is not six minutes per mile. So the, what the, the way that you want to emulate what Lydia was teaching was 
the amount of time that you're putting in, not the amount of miles that you're putting in. That's a brilliant insight. I've never really thought about it that way. I'm always talking in, in terms of uh, keeping your perspective about aerobic training relative. So when you see uh, Dina Castor running through the streets of Mammoth Lakes, California, 8,000 foot elevation, and she's flying along. This is the American record holder in the uh, marathon, two hours and 19 minutes, and one of the greatest runners, bronze medal in the Olympics. And she's running at a comfortable aerobic heart rate. But it's hard to relate to that because um, if you tried to run at that pace at that altitude, you'd be sucking air after two minutes. But it's the relative stress on the body. So we all have to realize that um, if we're going 180 minus age and that turns into a brisk walk, even though you can run a 23-minute 5K or you know put up good performances on the race course, that's what it is at this time. And you can always uh, strive for improvement. But also so that other element where you know we're comparing ourselves to the elite runners, but they're getting the whole thing done in ten hours in their home. Um, that's a uh, that's a significant factor. That if you're if you're just trying to you know um, um, strive for a similar number of hours, you go fewer miles. Big deal. You're still putting in the same level of training as an elite. That's right. Yeah, and you know, let's say you run a nine minute mile at your MAF pace, and you want to hit hundred miles a week. That's 50% more time on your feet training than elite runners. You know, what makes you think you could do that? Yeah, same thing for if you're training for a marathon uh, and you want to go do 22 miles because the magazine said that should be your final long run. Um, maybe you should just go by time and, and run, you know, the expected duration of your, uh, of your run. If it's four hours and you only go 18 miles because you're going slow, that's fine because you want to bring something special on race day and have that be a maximum energy output, peak performance effort. You don't have to approximate that over and over in training. You can dig deep on race day and that's what race day is all about. If you're a healthy, well-fed, well-rested, highly motivated athlete that hasn't been torched by overtraining patterns in daily life. Totally agree. Let's finish up with some exciting stuff about that, that cutting edge that you're on now, uh, especially your uh, interest in, in cold therapy. And then also want to talk about that, uh, that blue light exposure and how we can uh, mitigate the, the, the horrible damage that that's causing that we might not be aware of. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I guess this is sort of the, the end of my evolution of, of fitness or it's not the end, but it's the, the point of where the current point where I'm at now has led me to, to, you know, doing some things that are pretty, uh, far outside the, the realm of what most people call normal, I guess. Um, one of those things is ice baths, which, which you're also into. And, uh, for the longest time I, I had friends. In fact, one of the, one of the people who really encouraged me to do this is a primal health coach. Um, his name's Logan Schwartz, and he he had been telling me about ice baths and cold showers for at least a year. And I thought, man, you know, that's just a bridge too far for me. And I never wanted to do it. And every time I saw him, he asked me if I started doing it yet, and I said no. And Oddly enough, the thing that's, that actually spurred me on to do it was I was watching a PBS documentary and I saw a moose and her baby 
trying to outrun a wolf, being hunted by a wolf. And they're in the mountains and there's snow everywhere. And they come to this river, super wide river, and there's snow on the banks. And they don't even hesitate for a fraction of a second. They jump right in the river to get away from that wolf. And it just occurred to me at that moment that the cold water is nothing special for them because that's just part of their environment. And how wimpy have we become that if we don't have a hot water heater and hot water at our disposal coming out of our tap water when we take a shower, that this is some sort of big calamity and crisis that, you know, it's like ruin our day when the, the actual primal and natural way to be is probably to deal with the cold water because that's what the environment's giving you. And so that kind of, uh, for whatever reason, just made me want to give it a try. And so I started, I started giving it a try and it was, it was in winter and I would actually go to my neighbor's swimming pool, which at the time I think was like 46 degrees. And so he and I would go in the the pool and we started at five minutes. And so for several, several times in a row, maybe like every three days, we'd go in there for five minutes and immediately you just start feeling amazing when you come out of the water. And as you know, the science confirms that you get all of these endorphin and uh, norepinephrine and all kinds of um, good stuff floating around in your body for, as a result of getting in the cold water. And that's why you feel so great. But I'm also convinced that it uh, kind of resets your nervous system so that you don't perceive every little thing as this giant stressor. So back to the convenience of hot water, you know, we no longer have to experience the inconvenience of cold water. And so that just sort of narrows the scope of what our body considers to be a stress. And so now we're operating in this, this lifestyle where the bounds of what we consider stressful is so narrow. <laughs> I love it, dude. Oh my gosh, we're gonna we're gonna freak out if uh, uh, if if there's um, a red light on our route. You're right, and and the um, you know we're gonna go we're gonna go call the front desk and demand a, a a refund on our hotel room if if the water comes out cold. Yeah, exactly, and and you know I I realized that you know. Our, at least for me, what it feels like is that, you know, whatever that maximum amount of maximum stressful thing in your life is, that's sort of what um, triggers a stress hormone response. And, And so if you don't ever let yourself experience anything more stressful than missing a red light or, you know, hitting the red light or whatever, then it kind of puts you on edge for everything because pretty much everything is about equal to the stress of hitting a red light. So getting into that cold, 
just for listeners who might not be familiar with this, we're not talking about you jumping in the pool with your buddy and freezing your butts off and coming out shivering and feeling uncomfortable and terrible. We're talking about going for a duration that gives you that initial, uh, it's a, it's a hormetic fight or flight response, really. You're getting that, uh, initial shock to the water. And then as you get out before you've, uh, you know, run yourself down or put your immune system at risk, that's when you get the, uh, flood of mood elevating chemicals and the increased oxygen delivery, the increased blood circulation and all those benefits. So just to be clear, like if you want to go try this, the easiest way to do it is, uh, finish with a couple few minutes of cold shower and just get that, uh, sense of invigoration but uh like like i talked about in um uh in my in my show on the get over yourself podcast and detailing your regimen where you would run in the cold weather over to the uh, uh the pond and, and go in there for a, a sustained length of time it's because you were elevating your practice and getting more and more comfortable in the cold water so you could stay longer but it wasn't it was never forced right it was always uh in a way that you could handle yeah, uh, absolutely. So like I said, I started with my neighbor in this pool for about five minutes and we did five minutes, probably, I don't know, like 10 times. And then I, I suggested, Hey, let's, let's up, bump it up to six minutes. Then we started doing six minutes and then we started doing seven minutes. And then we got to with him, we were doing 10 minutes. And then later on my own, I, I went over the 10 minute mark, but yeah, it's not a, um, I'm not, you know, if I start shivering, I get out. And I think that's probably a good sign. Um, you know, you're, if you can't take a few deep breaths, which does help by the way, uh, Wim Hof's got it figured out, you know, in that deep diaphragmatic breathing and, and, uh, focusing on the breathing definitely helps with dealing with the cold and not, just instantly shivering. But if you're in the water and you can't use your breathing to calm down the shivering, that's the that's when you should get out. And I guess your explanation of that um, mental benefit, the, the resiliency that you get from exposing yourself to cold um, will help you calm down from that sympathetic dominant daily state to maybe become better at not sweating the small stuff, going with the flow, maintaining control of your emotions, all these things that are possibly connected to uh, deliberate practice, such as going in the cold water, or of course, doing a, a meditation or uh, a, a Tai Chi, like you see millions of people do every morning uh, in the big cities in Asia and, and all that great stuff where you're, you're taking control of your life rather than just being reactive at all times. I think so. I think it definitely has done that for me. I notice like if I miss a long, you know, two weeks of not doing cold since I don't have my uh, chest freezer set up like you do. Uh, yeah, I am a little bit more on edge and not quite as uh, calm to react and have a little bit shorter fuse. Well, there's good science uh, on the Mark Stanley Apple article. The not maybe it was called the maybe not so definitive guide to cold therapy because there's still uh, possibilities that we haven't sorted out. But um, one of the research links was that this exposure to cold has been known for a long time to be an instant cure for anxiety. It just changes the state of your brain right away. 
to to the extent that um, you you cannot be anxious when you're in cold water. You have to calm down. So that kind of stuff is fun and encouraging uh, listeners to try it out, even at the tiptoe basic level, and then maybe get into it further. And then the other thing we were talking about on email exchange was this uh, our propensity in modern life to uh, expose ourselves to artificial light and digital stimulation after dark and how that messes up not only our sleep cycles and our melatonin release, but you also referenced um, some some information you've come across that it's actually screwing up uh, the mitochondrial function, the energy production inside our cells. Yeah. Uh, so I, I stumbled across this um, from a guy named uh, Dr. Jack Cruz. And I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, I would say like, Two years ago, when I first started reading his stuff, he was really one of the only people out there talking about this. But there's literally science every day coming out about blue light. I I have a Google News alert set up for blue light and circadian biology. And I get stuff at least a few times a week about new research coming out about blue light. And just to kind of give listeners a, uh, the 101 course on, you know, why this is important. You know, we evolved under the sun and our body has evolved to take cues from the sun. And as the sun goes through across the sky, the atmosphere causes the light that reaches us to be slightly different at different times of the day. And the, the biggest effect that light has on the body you can Google this is very easily confirmed. It's called the dawn phenomenon. And what that is, is when you wake up in the morning and you see sunlight, it's got a certain amount of blue light. And that amount, it's about, I think in the middle of hot summer, uh, like summer solstice, I think it's like around 26% blue light. And that amount of light, a blue light, turns off your melatonin and gives you a little spike in cortisol to wake you up and get your day going. And the problem, and the reason I mentioned the 26% in, in morning summer sunlight is because all screens, computer screens, tablets, laptops, cell phones, televisions, and indoor lighting like LED and fluorescence, they all have four times more sunlight, I mean, blue light than summer sunlight. And so not only are we getting bombarded with the blue light at night when we're trying to go to sleep and it's turning off your melatonin production and spiking your cortisol, but even during the daytime, you're, if you're getting four times more than what the sun has, it is disrupting your hormonal cascade. And this is a big reason why things like Hashimoto's and thyroid and all of these other hormonal imbalance issues are so prevalent today, it, at least in my opinion, it's, and in the opinion of Dr. Uh, Cruz, who's a neurosurgeon, uh, is because these wavelengths are unnatural and they, uh, they are interfering with our the way that our bodies have evolved to respond to the sunlight and what 
it should be doing at different times of the day. Um, I think one of the things we discussed in email was uh, also what is referred to as non-native EMF, which is electromagnetic frequencies. So all light is electromagnetic frequencies. And what is meant by non-native EMF is the man-made EMF, like Wi-Fi, cell phone signals, Bluetooth, uh, smart meters, all of this stuff is non-native. And our mitochondria can actually sense uh, these different wavelengths. And, you know, they were designed to be able to sense the wavelengths of light in the environment and tell us either it's time to wake up or it's time to go to bed or uh, it, it, they even actually de detect um, what season it is based on the light quality coming from the sun so that the mitochondria can adapt better to burning seasonal food, which is why in summer you're more able to tolerate carbohydrate and use for carbohydrate for fuel and in going into late summer and fall when the uv light changes and goes away which is why you can't get a suntan in winter um the types of foods that are left at late summer early fall are like starchy root vegetables which have a lot of carbohydrate but the uv light has gone away and that is a signal to tell your body that you need to start storing that carbohydrate as fat rather than using it for fuel because winter's coming. And that's a big reason why obesity is such a big problem is because everyone is sitting indoors under artificial light with no UV light, eating chips and cookies and carbohydrates all day long. And their body's getting the signal that they should be storing fat because they're not exposed to UV light. So this, all of, like I said, all of this is very new science, but it's being more and more confirmed almost every day. Wow. And the, um, the public consciousness is dragging a long ways behind. It seems we're so used to, illuminating our evening environment and just to point out that's probably the biggest objection here is uh, when it gets dark outside our genes have been programmed for two and a half million years that that's the time to wind down uh, gradually get sleepy from melatonin flooding our bloodstream and then transition into a good night's sleep but when we when we blast our eyeballs with artificial light after dark then we're telling our body that um, it's still it's still daytime. Um, generally speaking, since we do this every day year round, it's always summertime. So this endless summer concept it was uh, communicated beautifully in this uh, great book, "Lights Out: Sleep, Sugar, and Survival." That's the title of the book, uh, and the authors were explaining that when we're locked into this endless summer mode because of our artificially lengthened days, like we see naturally in summer, um, our genes are prompting to uh, 
consume sugar because that's our ancestral pattern was we'd binge on the uh, ripened berries of the summertime and actually fatten up in preparation for the winter when uh, genetically we were wired to survive long winters without uh, sufficient food. So we're now in this sugar binge summertime mode all the time year round. And so we're kind of in fat storage mode all the time just because, I mean, not just because, but many reasons, but this introduction of light after dark is a huge contributing factor, like you said, to the obesity epidemic and to possibly uh, compromise goals when we're trying to, for example, use the Fitness Pal app and realize that you ate 300 calories less than you burned 17 days in a row and you weigh the same and all those kind of things. I think generally also it's going to uh, dysregulate appetite hormones so that you're going to have a, a extreme difficulty in restricting caloric intake due to influences like uh, sympathetic stimulation from uh, driving in stressful traffic or uh, blasting your eyeballs with uh, entertainment in the evening. Absolutely. And just to bring it all back home to why uh, things like the primal blueprint and keto reset work is because, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the endless summer, except for no UV light, that is why a ketogenic diet works for most people is because they're not getting natural sunlight. They're indoors under artificial light all the time, never exposed to UV. And when you have any amount of carbohydrate at all in that scenario, the environmental factors are telling your body to store it as fat. So when you introduce a ketogenic diet, at a minimum, you're going to stop storing new fat. And most people are going to lose weight because of the nature of the ketogenic diet. Right. Kind of a hormonal reset when you take the sugar out of the equation and start transitioning over to fat burning. Love it. Good analogy. Um, we, we have to finish off with a, a little speed golf, man, because you, um, you, you pointed toward that occasion with Dolly uh, Props to him for being supportive of your your first speed golf event, and you um, sort of got sort of got the bug. So tell me a little more about that first round and how that opened you up to uh, getting great fitness goals in place and, and plunging into this sport with passion and enthusiasm. Well, like you had mentioned, you know, I I ran track in in high school and college, and so I kind of had this you know competitive itch that. Um, I hadn't been scratching for a while, or at least I was trying to do it through golf, but you know, there's a big difference between uh, an activity like golf and a, and a real fitness activity like running, or I guess I should say cardiovascular fitness activity like running. And so I hadn't run in a while and, and Scott asked me to come out and, and do the speed golf thing. And like I said, I, I you know finished way behind him and I was real down on myself and he came up and said, no, 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 no. You, you, for an amateur, that's really good. You know, and I think we'd done our first run in January and the world championships were in October. And he was like, Hey, if you really get in shape by October, you could probably, you know, qualify and, and participate in the world championships. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? World championships. And so that was really my motivation to get back in shape was to try to get to the world championships and um, I guess that was 20, it was, a, it was the last year that they were at Bandon. Was that 2014? Yeah. And so I went and I had, 
I had just lost all this weight, 25 pounds. And I knew that I was still, you know, 20 pounds overweight. And I showed up to worlds and my only concern was like, just don't make a fool of yourself and, and run 15 minutes slower than the next slowest guy. <laughs> and then, of course, you did make a fool of yourself because the first round, everyone made a fool of themselves. We went out there and um, there was a sustained 38 mile per hour wind with gust up to 60. And we we're trying to play on the golf course. And it was like complete joke, unplayable, where you'd hit a shot and it would blow back right up to your feet and all that fun stuff. But Oh, I, I'd forgotten about that. So that was actually my second year. So my first year at the Worlds was 2013. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I literally, I, I really thought that there was a good chance that I would finish like 15 minutes slower than the next fastest guy or the next slowest guy. And I totally didn't like I, 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 all I wanted was to not be the slowest guy. And so I focused nothing on the golf and just focused on running my ass off. <laughs> and I ended up getting third in my age group, which I thought, man, I know I got 20 more pounds to lose. If I could just get the fitness under control, I could really do some damage here in the amateur ranks. And then I did lose the weight. Thank, thanks to talking to you. But the funny thing is, uh, my golf held me back for the, <laughs> for the next like four years in speed golf. Well, it's a, it's a delicate balance and, um, your, your, um, your, your time on the course is so highly influenced by how well you play golf. So you can be a running machine like Bernard Legat, one of the greatest runners in history, American record holder and Olympic medalist. He's a, he's a golf enthusiast, but he's not a good player. And I remember he went out there in the world championships and shot 117 or something. Uh, but of course running far faster than yeah. the guys who are jogging and shooting par, but a fun little, uh, insight about the, um, about the sport. Uh, but I think I, I wanted to bring it up because I, I hit this theme pretty hard on the Get Over Yourself podcast that as we go through life and we age and we're outside of our peak competitive years when you were a college athlete, uh, the importance of having that compelling goal and something to shoot for and a date on the calendar circled that says world championships, you're going to get on a freaking airplane and fly across the country and be an actual competitor with a number. I feel like it's a really important element in life that that a lot of times we sort of push off to the side because we're busy coaching our own kids doing their sports or busy watching uh, the all the NFL games on Sunday. So we're sitting on our butt watching golf or sports of any kind and missing out on the opportunity to put ourselves on the line and compete. Even if it's something of minimal consequence, we have to find some source of passion and, and keep that competitive intensity going. But with a healthy perspective, getting over ourselves realizing this is not the end all and not not getting into uh, a fights at the adult league uh, basketball game on Thursday night honestly because <laughs> you know the competitive intensity some people have that burning no problem all the time and then some people are sitting on the couch too much watching TV but there's that sweet spot where you can be a really passionate competitor but someone who's doing it with a smile and giving your absolute very best but also you know managing the other responsibilities in your life knowing that you're you're not an elite performer anymore, but you're doing the best you can with your, your resources and circumstances. 
Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think I, I think speed golf and ultra running and triathlon all lend themselves well to that type of deal because the communities that make up those sports are so welcoming and you know, there's a lot of camaraderie involved and you show up to an event and everybody's happy to see you because they hadn't seen you since the last event. And, and everybody's kind of in the same boat and understands that we all got life and work and jobs and kids and lots of stuff going on, but, uh, volleyball tournaments to take all day with your daughter, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She actually just, uh, broke her ankle. Oh, mercy. Yeah, she was at practice and landed on a, another uh, kid's foot and and uh, broke the ankle. But good news is, uh, you know, 13 years old, uh, the prognosis is four weeks in a cast and she's good to go. <laughs> Imagine that if we broke our ankles at, uh, you know, if I broke my ankle at 53, it'd probably be 14 weeks instead of four weeks. No kidding. Uh, dude, you, you brought your A-game, man. I love it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. We covered so many important topics, and I feel like the 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 uh, thread of the shows here uh, was was building upon the you know the very basics when you're a guy carrying too much weight and 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 pulling out your back, and then uh, you know going on this quest, and the the intensity of your quest is so inspiring to see someone who's you know this deep into all the aspects of. Uh, healthy progressive alternative living so uh thanks for thanks for sharing the the magic with the listeners well thanks so much for the opportunity to come on um and and let me share my story and you know i i like that thread of going from you know basically like zero to 60 and i hope that if anyone's out there listening and you know they find themselves maybe in a in a fitness level where they're not happy with and they're not quite sure how to move forward, just, you know, take it from me, a guy who, who's, you know, been 45 pounds heavier and had a bad back. You can make changes. You can do it. You can move forward. You can uh, get to whatever place you want to be, wherever you have in, in, in mind. You can get there. You may not do it tomorrow, but if you just keep slowly doing the next right thing and, and exploring that next, uh, you know, health adventure, you will get there. Beautiful. Dude Spellings in Austin, Texas. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, listeners. Enjoy everything. Go for it. Like Dude says, you'll get there. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table? It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder... <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too... Per- <laughs> it's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? 
She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. Oh yeah, she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> That's my pleasure.